Let's stand for reading of God's Word. We honor God by standing when we read His Word. We're in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Know what is coming, and let me preface this teaching with these words. This sets the foundation for all of your prophetic teaching. This is an enormously important chapter. So please, as best you can, zone in and stay zoned in. I know how tendency is to zone in and zone out. We'll try to stay zoned in. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my visions by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and an eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on the side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that was before it. And it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there is in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking pompous words. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Know what is coming. Know that our God reigns. The theme of Daniel is this. God is sovereign over Nations, God is sovereign over rulers, and God is sovereign over you. We've said this every week. Now, last week was Daniel in the lion's den, just very briefly. Uh, Daniel is going to survive the lion's den. How does he survive it? Does he hide in a crevice? Did he have a pitchfork that he was poking the lions with? Oh, no, it was an angel. An angel, some people believe it was a pre-incarnate Jesus. It could have been a regular angel. But however you look at it, it was supernatural. He was delivered from the lion's den. And it was for a purpose. Remember, miracles are for a purpose. It's not for entertainment. It has a purpose. And God used Daniel as a witness to Cyrus to know who the true God really is. Verse 20 says this, The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God. What a witness Daniel had in that pagan environment, that this pagan king recognizes Daniel's God as the true God. That's a message for all of us, folks. People in our world must know how we feel about the true God. We don't hide our light. Now, this is very important, especially in an era that deny the true God or make God up in their minds. I mean, people are just going along, making God up as they, as they please. Nothing congruent with the God of the Bible. Remember this, our God is in charge, our God is in control, and Cyrus has learned this, and hopefully we learn this through our lives. Daniel lived because God wanted him to live. It was just that simple. No conspiracy of the plotters trying to get him into the den, the lion's den, would thwart God's plan. Oh, no, no hungry lion would do this. No foolish king decision would thwart God's plan. God had a purpose for Daniel, and God has a purpose for us. It's just that simple, and we are here to fulfill our purpose. During this little thing called our life, we are here to fulfill our purpose for our God. 
That's the first thing we learned. God used Daniel. Secondly, all glory goes to God. We learned this last time. Daniel is part of this play, so to speak, being played out. But God is really the hero. God is the one that delivers. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. He's passive in this, but he, he believes he did his part. But God is really the one that was the hero. My God sent his angel, he says to Cyrus, and shut the mouths of the lions. The questions for all of us, and we asked this last time when we met, is my God able to deliver me? Now that's Daniel. That's the Bible. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Folks, these are real people at a real time going through a real crisis with a real intervention by God. That's what we have to remember. In crunch time, we said this last time, when things come into your life that are way beyond your ability to imagine, we pray, not panic. Just like Daniel did. He prayed, he didn't panic. He went to those windows, he opened the doors, he knew these plotters were there, and he just did what he normally did. He did not panic. He trusted God no matter what. And remember this, we talked about this. Oftentimes, we would say miracles are, are, are rare, okay? Daniel was rare. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rare. God can step into time and do the impossible. He can do the impossible. My job is to believe that he can do the impossible. But look, at if God chooses not to do that type of spectacular miracle, hear this. This is, this is very important. If he chooses not to deliver us that, with that type of miracle, my job is to believe and trust him no matter what and realize that through it all, no matter what crunch is coming, God is with me. His presence is with me, and folks, that is a miracle. That is a miracle, to have his presence. He will strengthen you. He will make a way for you. He will never, ever, ever, remember five nevers, never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. Your God is with you to the end. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered. Well, there was a whole litany of people that weren't. Stephen was stoned. Remember? He, he was stoned, and as he's dying, he says, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. See, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. Stephen got his attention. And he sees Stephen suffering a martyr's death. Jesus stands. I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. Paul was beheaded. The disciples died as martyrs. All of them did except for John. The early church were, remember the early church were thrown into Nero's circus. They were entertainment for Nero as they were slaughtered. Martyrs today, by the way, are more than at any other time in history. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. They're more than any time in history today. They are dying for the faith. God's greatest promise in whatever we go through is his presence. He is with you. And I want to share something with you. You've never heard this before. Listen up. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we read these words. Paul is speaking. And he says, I do not want you to be ignorant brethren, talking to the church, talking to them, the, the believers that then and believers now. Brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Others who have no hope. See, those who die without Christ, no hope. No hope. For if we believe, and that's actually a first-class if, or it should say since we believe. It, it is true. It is actually true. It, it will happen. Since Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him, 
those who sleep in Jesus. And in the original, it says this, or through Jesus sleep. Arnold Fruchtenbaum turned me on to this. He said, Jesus puts believers to sleep to take us home. Anytime you see a believer die, Jesus Christ is right there putting them to sleep. Taking, and we have angel escort into heaven, don't we? Luke 16. He is with us. This is an intimate God that we serve, an intimate God all the way to the end. Psalm 116.15 says this, precious, precious. It's a Hebrew word, but Timmy in the Greek, it means, it means valuable, of immense value. Precious in the sight of God is the passing of one of his saints. Precious. Oh, we learned that our, all glory goes to God. And then we learn that those who choose to sin, those plotters who choose to sin, there was a ripple effect. And you remember what the ripple effect was? What happened to their family? They were thrown into the lion's den. And remember, we had the picture of the ripple. And sin always affects more than the individual. It always ripples out. It, we suffer later and we suffer greater. And finally, we learn this. Cyrus acknowledged God's kingdom will not be destroyed. He uses those words in verse 26, that God's kingdom will not be destroyed. It'll be an eternal kingdom. And then we talked about entrance into that kingdom. There's two kingdoms. There's a spiritual kingdom which you enter into right now when you say yes to the Lord Jesus. You're in the spiritual kingdom of God. And your job, remember, in the spiritual kingdom of God is to go and tell. Not sit. Not sit and listen. We, listen, and listen's good. But not just sit and listen, and that's it. It is sit, listen, heed, and do what the Word says. Go and tell. That's the Great Commission. Go into the world. And you tell everybody, teaching them to obey all things, making disciples of all nations, that sort of thing. And then there's going to be a physical kingdom where Jesus is actually going to come and defeat Antichrist. He's going to be thrown into the, into the lake of fire. This is good news, folks. Lake of fire. And he is going to establish his physical millennial kingdom. By the way, we will be ruling with him. Now, how you rule in that kingdom, we've, told, we've mentioned this many times before, so it won't be new to most of you, but how we rule there is determined by our faithfulness to serving our God here. If we are faithful to using the gifts that he has given us, there's going to be greater reward in heaven. Okay, that's the principle. Now, this week, know what is coming. Know what is coming. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll open our spiritual eyes. Keep our ears open, and Lord, help us to be attentive for just a few minutes here to hear what you have for us today. Holy Spirit, teach us those things that you want us to know, and help us to apply them. In Jesus' name, amen. So Daniel chapter 7, again, is pivotal in understanding Bible prophecy. Pivotal, pivotal. John Wolvard says this, chapter 7 is a high point in the revealing of the book of Daniel, and in some sense the material before as well as the material which follows pivots on the detailed revelation of this chapter. Now the question is, is why in the world is Daniel 7 so important? Well, Daniel 7 gives us a blueprint for Bible prophecy, gives us a blueprint, gives us a, 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 something that we can go on right at the foundation, and you can be very confident in this. That God's sovereign power, that his rulership, his king and his kingdoms are past, are present, and will happen into the future because Bible prophecy tells us so, 
and Bible prophecy is 100% accurate. It is always going to come to fruition, just as God says. And God's heart is for his children. Listen to this. To know his secret counsel, and it's emphasized in Scripture. He wants us to know. He demands, actually, that we study the word and know. Amos says this in Amos 3.7, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals it to his, his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. And David adds in Psalm 25.14, The secret of the Lord. Oh, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear them, and he will show them his covenant. What is God telling us? Study. Be prepared. Be prepared. Be ready. And somebody wrote this statement. I don't know who it was, but it's a great statement. Only he who knows prophecy can dwell in the calm of eternity now. See, the moment that you were created, you stepped into eternity. You're in eternity right now. And you're living out your life. It's just the very beginning of it. And you can live through the calm of what's happening around you because we know who's in charge, and we know how the whole thing ends. And we also know, by the way, it's always good to be on the winning team. So what does he mean? We have peace in the midst of the chaos. So chapters 7 through 12 are going to be prophetic. It's called apocalyptic literature. So it's Daniel's apocalyptic dream. Now, apocalypse simply means this. It comes from the word apocalypto, and it means to remove the cover from. It means to remove that which conceals something. It has the idea of a spiritual truth that was hidden that the lid is now taken off. The lid is now removed so that now we can know, we can know what is to come. We can know what is going to be the future. We, can ha- we know what's going to happen. We can know it. Now, why is prophecy important? Well, Charles Feinberg, who's a Jewish, Jewish believer, lists several things. I'm going to share a couple of them with you. Number one, why do we think prophecy is important? It will bring us near to God. When we study Bible prophecy and you realize that this thing is really true, that things happened in the past just like it was prophesied, we can count on it happening into the future, that will bring me closer to God. Listen, friends, not servants, are told confidences. God tells his friends secret confidences that he wants you to know. It brightens hope. It brightens hope. And isn't that something that we need in a world today? Hope. Hope looks onward. Hope looks forward to something better. Hope looks imminently forward to something good happening. Something good is going to happen. The next one is this. It affords the true perspective of history. Look, we get our history from CNN and Fox News, and MSNBC, and ABC, and CBS, and all the other, other ones. That is phony baloney. A proper perspective of our world is not the news, but it's God's Word. Not the news, but God's Word. And finally, it purifies our life. And if we know this is true, and we know that God is real, and it gives us a reason, I want to live in a way that is pleasing to my God. It purifies my life. It's a mighty force to shape the life in conformity with the will of God. The bottom line is this. The bottom line is this. Knowing that this is all true, this is history. History is his story, right? His story. 
is being played out right before our eyes. This is motivation to serve our king. Remember this, what God says will happen. What? Will happen. <laughs> it's 100%. It's 100%. So verse 1, Daniel's going to have a dream. He's going to have a vision. And this is a flashback in time. Verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. And that was smart of Daniel, to write down the dream. Because you have had dreams, and you have got up in the morning, and you're going, what in the world was that dream all about? I can't hardly remember. Well, this dude woke up and wrote it down. Wrote it down. That's for us today. The time is this. The time is about 14 years before Belshazzar's party in Daniel chapter 5, when he was all full of himself, thinking that he's going to be protected from Cyrus's advance on the Babylonian kingdom. And he was surprised, remember, when he was conquered. Daniel at this time is in, in the mid-60s. Remember in chapter 5, he was in his 80s. And please note this, that Belshazzar might have forgotten Daniel, but God did not forget Daniel. God is always active. He was active in Daniel's life. God is always at work around you. Remember that when you think that God has forgotten you. He is always at work in your life. You can count on that. Daniel wrote down his dream and what he saw so that we can know unequivocally what is coming. This is coming. This is coming. Be ready. Messiah is coming. These are the signs. We're right on the precipice of it, folks. We're right on the precipice of it. Look at the Bible prophecy proves the Bible to be true. Hear this. Most of you know this, but please hear this. It's the only holy book in the world with fulfilled prophecy. There is zero in the Muslim Quran. There is zero in the Hindu writings. There is zero Bible prophecy with Buddha or any other world religion. And Isaiah says it perfectly in Isaiah 46, 9. He says this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. See, there is no competitor with the true God. There is one God, no competitor with him. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. What's he talking about? He's outside of time. He knows exactly what's going to happen through this whole timeline. Anything that happens in your life is not a shock to him. It's not a shock that Hillary Clinton was defeated. Conversely, it's not a shock that Trump became president. It might be a shock to the rest of the world, but it wasn't a shock to God. Remember, he raises up kings. He brings down kings. And from ancient times that are not yet, that's prophecy, folks, saying, my counsel will stand, shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. He's sovereign. He's powerful. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. He's talking about Cyrus. Cyrus is going to do what I wanted him to do. Indeed, I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposes. I will also do it. You can count that what God has said in his word, he will do. Amen. Think about this. 28% of the Bible is prophecy. 28%. God expects his people to know what is coming. So what are we to do? Study. Now, study is a whole lot different than reading. Reading, to get through the Bible, say I read through the Bible, that's a great thing. I'm not undermining that whatsoever. We get nuggets from that. 
But there's nothing like studying the Word of God. And that's what we are commanded to do. Not simply read the Word of God, but to study the Word of God. So, there's a move in the church today to not study Bible prophecy in the global church. Okay, now hear this. This is important. It's too complex. It's too divisive. It's too scary. It's about the wrath of God coming. Oh, it's scary stuff, and we're going to scare our kids, and it's going to scare me. You know, David Reagan says this about the abuse of prophecy. He has a prophecy program on TV. Some people say it's too complex that you have to have a doctorate in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just how you study Scripture to understand it. He says, of course, this is not true. We all have the Holy Spirit. We just must have a willingness to study it. He goes on to say, another common excuse for ignoring prophecy is that it's too worldly, too otherworldly. It's all pie in the sky and has no relevance to the present. That is false. That is a false view. Hear this. Hear this. There will be those in the end times who will mock God's prophetic word. How do I know that? Well, we're living in that epoch of time, but also 2 Peter 3, 4 tells us that where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of all of this stuff being fulfilled? Show me, show me. And then he goes on to, to demonstrate that. Many will mock God's word. It's not uncommon for non-believers. I mean, you can expect that from non-believers. They, they don't know. And it's our job to help them to know. And God will illuminate who he really is to them. Until he does, they're not going to know. They can't, they can't know. But it's very disconcerting when Christian leaders cause much confusion on this subject. Now, David Reagan says this, and he calls out people. Rick Warren. Now, I want you to think about something. Those in the seeker-sensitive movement, that's the giant churches, most of them are giant churches, that people go to and you never see a Bible and that sort of thing. That's the seeker movement. Now, that has deteriorated into the emergent church, where it's become more bizarre and more spiritualized and that sort of thing. And then the reform people tend to focus more on God's word and less on eschatology because what did Luther fight with? Soteriology, how someone is really saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So he's fighting the whole Catholic thing of faith and works and that sort of thing. So their focus is not so much on that. But hear what he says about Rick Warren. In, his, in Rick Warren's purpose-driven life, he says this. He mocks Bible prophecy when he states, if you want Jesus to come back sooner... Focus on fulfilling your mission, not figuring out prophecy. He goes on to characterize prophecy as being a distraction and says that anyone who lets himself gets involved in distractions, like studying prophecy, is not fit for the kingdom of God. What a statement. Tony Campolo was, was very popular in the 80s, and now he's an emergent church guy. He's deteriorated into an emergent church guy. He wrote in the book, Speaking My Mind, Rigid Christians who believe in the possibility of Jesus soon return are the real problem in the world today. He then proceeds to blame them for the wars and a host of other evils. Strange. Bill Moyers. Now, Bill Moyers is a PBS journalist. He was also a graduate of a Baptist seminary. Says He gave a speech in 2005 and said he, denou he denounced Tim LaHaye as a religious warrior who subscribes to fanatical theology. He then claimed that those who believe in Bible prophecy desire environmental disaster as a sign of the coming apocalypse. 
And finally, Brian McLaren. Now, I don't know who's ever heard of Brian McLaren, but he's a virgin church guru. He's very popular in many circles. Says this in Sojourners Magazine, April 2009, that any theology that stresses a special end-time role for Israel is terrible, deadly, distorted, biblically unfaithful, morally and ethically harmful. He further stated that those who take the end-time prophecies about Israel seriously use a bogus end-of-the-world scenario to create a kind of death wish for World War III, which unless is confronted more robustly by the rest of us, could too easily create a self-fulfilling prophecy. So people today, generally in the Western world, are diminishing the importance of prophecy. And look at we who believe in prophecy as being strange and weird and out there. Look at 28% of God's word is prophecy. And he expects us to study and to know what is coming. So the book of Daniel is true. The book of Revelation is true. We'll be, we'll be following Daniel with the book of Revelation. And God expects his people to know what is coming, to know what is coming, to not panic, but to be prepared and live in peace, knowing, knowing, knowing that God is in control. He is sovereign. Now, verses 2 through 3. Four beasts came out of the sea. Like four beasts are coming out of the sea. Now, you're going to have to get the terminology down here to understand what's going on. Verse 2 and 3. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven. And if you're just blowing through this and just reading through this, you're going to go, what in the world is he talking about? The four winds of heaven stirring up a great sea, and four great beasts came out from the sea, each different from the other. And you're going, what in the world is all that about? That's why you have to study. We must understand terms. In apocalyptic literature, there's a use of symbols to express a point. Now, if you have a handout, it might be good to cut this section out of your handout and paste it in your Bible someplace. The proper rules for interpretation of Scripture. These are just rudimentary Rudimentary. There are a lot of more rules than this, but this at least have this down. Consult the immediate context for the answer. So we have strange symbols here. Consult the immediate context for an answer. That's number one. Step number two. If none is found, look elsewhere in the same book. Something that might help you explain. And if that doesn't work, look elsewhere in the Bible and it will be found. God uses symbols throughout the scripture. And they are, you can find out what he's talking about if you search and study. These symbols will be clarified. So, the four winds. Now, what in the world is the four winds? Well, we know the Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach, the spirit of God, the ruach, can be wind or spirit. And this represents God's power, his omnipotence. There is nothing that God cannot do. He will never be thwarted. Verse 2 says, the four spirits were stirring up the great sea. And again, this is God's power, his omnipotent power. He's orchestrating human events. Now, you're going to see this with the great sea. The great sea, at least in Hebraic teaching, is going to be the Mediterranean Sea. Oftentimes, the sea just refers to the Gentile world. This is re referring specifically to the Gentile nations around the Mediterranean Sea. Jesus uses the sea symbolically. In Matthew 13, 47, he has the parable of the dragnet. And in that parable, he says, he cast a net into the sea, 
And they caught some from every nation, from every people group. That's the Gentiles being brought into the family of God, the sea of nations. And many times this word is used in Revelation. I'll just give you one example, 13.1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea, the Gentile nations. So the Antichrist, the beast, is going to be a Gentile coming out of a Gentile nations. Okay, You can count on that. So the beast, that's our next one, Gentile kingdoms came out of the sea. Now, all the Gentile kings all have dominion over Israel. Now, why do the Gentiles have dominion over Israel? Israel's God's chosen people. Because Israel disobeyed God and engaged in worship of all the foreign gods of the lands that they were involved with. And also, that's Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. They took up all the gods of those cultures that took them over. But Israel also rejected Messiah under the Roman rule. Now, I've added something here that I think you should know. This is kind of a side note, but I think it's important. That we are living today in a time that is known as the time of the Gentiles. We are in the dispensation of grace. Remember, law, grace, kingdom. The kingdom is coming. We're in grace right now. The kingdom is coming. That'll be the next kingdom. We'll be taken out before that happens. Now, the time of the Gentiles is defined, Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it this way. The time of the Gentiles can best be defined as that long period of time from the Babylonian Empire, that's Daniel's time when, when they went into captivity, to the second coming of Messiah, during which time the Gentiles have dominance over the city of Jerusalem. And to this day, Jerusalem is separated into four sectors. There is a Jewish sector, there is a Christian sector, there's an Arab sector, there's, an, I believe, an Armenian sector. Four sectors. Three of the four are Gentiles. It's still trodden down by the Gentiles today. Today. The scripture is Luke 21, 24. And they, speaking of the Jewish people, shall fall by the edge of the sword. That's exactly what happened with Babylonian captivity, and that is exactly what happened in 70 A.D. when Rome trampled down Jerusalem and shall be led captive into all the nations. That's the diaspora. That's the dispersion of the Jews throughout all the world. You have the Jews dispersed, kicked out of their land until miracle of miracle of miracles. On May 14, 1948, God set up that nation again in its own land, never before in the history of the world. And Jewish nation became established, a miracle of miracles, an evidence that God is in control and that the Bible is true. And Jerusalem shall be trotted down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled, until Jesus establishes a millennial kingdom and then Jerusalem will be controlled by the Jewish people, and Jesus will reign from there. Now, there is also another term that I want you to be familiar with, and that is the fullness of the Gentiles. This will be found in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 26. Now, most of you will have this starred in your Bible and underlined in your Bible. This is a key point, key point. So, the fullness of the Gentiles is a set number that are saved during the church age. The church age. 
from Pentecost to the rapture of the church. From Pentecost to the rapture of the church, when the church is taken out, the rapture of the church. That's the fullness of the Gentiles. Romans 11:25 through 26 says this, For I do not desire brethren. Oh, you see Paul writing again, just like he did in Thessalonians. Brethren, I want you to know. I want you to know. I want you to know. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Well, what's the mystery? He's going to tell us. Lest you should, be, you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel. That's the mystery. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. You know what that's saying? That all the Jews that make it to the end of the tribulation period, those will be saved. They will go into the millennial kingdom of Christ. Two-thirds will die, according to Zechariah. And one-third will make their escape into Basra or Petra and avoid the Antichrist. Two-thirds will die. All of Israel that will be saved are all of the remaining that will believe in Messiah at the very end of the tribulation. It'll take all that awfulness of the tribulation for those Jewish people to recognize their sin of rejecting Messiah and plead for him to return. That's what will happen here. Acts 15.14 says this, A key purpose for the church age is this, which we are living in now. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, stop right here. Everybody take a look up here. Aren't you ecstatic that God chose to use in his grace that he brought Gentiles into his family? that we've been grafted into Israel. He's included us, and it was always part of his plan. It was always part of his plan, but I'm just so thrilled with that. Daniel 7 is showing God's view of these Gentile nations. Now, remember, we had this picture up many times. The statue, again, this is how man looks at the, at the nations. Babylon, that was, the, that was the head. Persia, silver. Greece, Rome, and, and please, of all this figure, don't forget this. There's an east and west division of Rome. This is what we are living in today, an east and west division of nations. Okay, you can see the eastern block of nations. You can see a western block of nations, and they're all fighting for control of who's going to reign on earth. That's been going on all the way back to the beginning of this thing. And finally, this thing will deteriorate into ten nations, ten toes, Ten-nation confederation. That conglomeration, it says, is iron and clay, and they don't mix well. It will be a weak, it'll be a weak blending of this. So, man's view is that they're wonderful, beautiful, and pretty, and God's view is that they are beasts. And notice you have the lion, you have the bear, you have the leopard, but there is nothing to describe Rome. He's just one big, ugly mess monster. There's nothing in nature that can describe Rome. We'll see that more right now. Verses 4 through 6, the first three beasts. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now, if you're just here for the first time and you look at this, that's another what in the world is that? But we know it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 who have been with us. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, that's going to be Persia, was raised up on the side, 
had three ribs in his mouth between his teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And there's some mysterious stuff there. After this, this, I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. I mean, this is another strange thing we're looking at here. So let's develop it. So in verse 4, we see the lion. It's, it, it's, it's the emblem of, of Babylon. So the lion with the eagle's wings is Babylon. And, and I want, there's a picture actually in the British Museum that has this picture. This would be Nebuchadnezzar. This is a picture of what Babylon is. It's exactly what the, what the scriptures had, had declared. That was from the nation of Babylon. The wings that were plucked off were, were Nebuchadnezzar's humbling in chapter 4. Remember, he's going to be humbled. He was lifted up from the earth. Remember when the, I had the picture of the tree being chopped down? And, he was, and that's actually what said in the scripture, he's being chopped down. He's losing his position. And then finally, after seven seasons or seven years of grazing like an animal, he has, he's given a, a heart of a man, and he repents and he turns to God. And then Nebuchadnezzar, at the very end of four, in chapter 4, verse 36, he exalts God to the Most High God. He recognizes who God is, and his kingdom is restored. That's Nebuchadnezzar. But in verse 5, we're introduced to a bear, which is Persia. A beast like a bear. It's second in power to the lion. And it's Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. And if you look at history, the Medes and the Persians jockeyed for who would be number one. Persia ends up being the one that's in control. At the start of this thing, the Medes were the most powerful. But Persia rises up and, 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 and is tilted towards the Persian, Persian side. Persia had a huge army. This is interesting a two-and-a-half-million-man army that devoured its kingdoms. It was raised up on one side. That's the power struggle. And the three ribs in the mouth, history has proven what this is. They devoured three kingdoms, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. Interesting. With a 2,500,000 fighting army, they, they arose and they devoured much flesh. They were cruel. They were powerful. They were victorious. And God raised them up. Then there's the leopard. That's Greece in verse 6. The leopard with four wings. It indicates speed. Which That's how Alexander the Great had victories. It was with great speed that he conquered. This is Greece. He moved very swiftly. When broken up, it was broken up into four divisions. Now, Alexander died at the age of 33, an alcoholic. He had conquered all the way to India. He fought a guy named Porsus or something like that in India. And, and he was victorious. And instead of advancing, his generals were tired of battle. They were tired of extending themselves. And he did all of this with a 35,000-man army. Now, who was giving Alexander the victory? Was it Alexander's great mind or was it God? It was God. It was God. Let's, let's do that again. Was it Alexander or was it God? It was God. It was God. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Let's, let's just burst that one out there. And, and it's king. When he died, it was divided into, into his four generals divided up the kingdom. Keep that in mind. Now, the, it doesn't sound like it's very interesting. It might sound a little textbooky, but it is important to Bible prophecy, particularly two of the kingdoms. So the four divisions are this. After Alexander died, four generals split it up. Ptolemy is number one. He got Egypt and South Israel. Egypt and the southern portion of Israel. Seleucus had the north of Israel and Syria. 
Lysimius had Asia Minor, and Cassander had Macedonia. Forget the last two. They're not ever mentioned again. They're done. Okay? But Ptolemy and Seleucus are going to be mentioned in the future. They continue to fight. Notice both of them have part of Israel. So fighting goes back and forth over the nation of Israel. And something significant comes out of Seleucus. It is in the following chapter, Daniel will, fo- will focus on Ptolemy and Seleucus, and this is where we see Antiochus Epiphany the Syrian, who desecrates the temple, sacrifices a pig in the temple, and desecrates the temple of God, and is a picture of the Antichrist, what he will do in Revelation. That is what the significance of Seleucus and Ptolemy is. We'll see more of these two coming up soon. Verse 7 through 8, we talk about the fourth beast, Rome. After this, now this is a second vision in this short period of time. He had the one vision when he went to sleep. He had these dreams. After this, this is a second vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had a huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns, and this is the first time we're going to be introduced to these, or more, a little more clarity on who the ten horns are. We had the ten toes before, but now it's the ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn. Uh-oh, something different. A little one. Focus on that. Circle that. Because it starts out as a little one. The Antichrist will come on the scene as a little one. He's the 11th horn. He is going to come on the scene slowly and build. Okay? Just keep that thought. Coming up among them, before whom three of the first, first horns were plucked out by the roots. That doesn't sound good. And there, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous, arrogant words, mostly directed at the living God. This beast is so ugly, nothing in nature can describe it. Ugly, you ugly, you're ugly, you're ugly, ugly, ugly. That's Rome. Worse than the first three, dreadful, terrible, like iron, exceedingly strong. Devoured, broken pieces, more ferocious than the three previous empires. And recall the stature, again, east and west divisions. Exists to today. That's where we are today. On the horizon is a one-world government which will deteriorate into a ten-nation type situation. The future is different than all the other beasts. Again, the ten horns, the ten kings will come to fruition. And I showed you this picture before. But the world has already divided the world into ten nations. It's interesting that they decided to do it in ten nations. They don't believe the Bible. Most of them don't read the Bible. They have nothing to do with the Bible. But they come up with this ten-nation distribution. Well, there's going to be rulers. and Now, three of these are going to rebel against the Antichrist. Now, what three they are, who knows? Because you'd think America would be one of them. We're, the Christian church is becoming a little... You ever see the Michelin commercial with the little Michelin guy? Little, little soft powder puff, little Michelin guy walking across there, you know? That's the American church today. You want to see a church of steel? You go to China or you go to Iran. Iran has a revival, a hidden revival, and they will tell you, I don't care if I have to go to prison for 50 years for preaching the gospel. 
That's nothing compared to eternity. And they are meeting in fields, they are meeting in houses, they are meeting in caves, they are meeting all over the place. And it's a disseminated church. It's not just one big church with a steeple, and you come in and everybody just hears one guy, oh no, it's all kinds of people that are teaching little small groups all over. It's a huge revival in Iran. That's a praise God. That's a praise God. Another horn, a little one, comes up again. Starts out slow, gains power and influence. And when the Antichrist gains power and influence, that's when he makes his move and he takes over. So he starts out nice. Everybody loves him. And then he makes his move and he takes over. And notice what he does. He subdues three of them. Three horns are plucked out by the roots. That word plucked means rendered helpless. Doesn't mean he destroys those nations, but he renders them helpless. So they capitulate and bow. What does this mean? That our seven kings immediately submit to him. Seven of those divisions in the world immediately bow to the Antichrist. Three of them put up a resistance and are overcome. And next time, or the week after, in 724, we're going to see three kings are subdued there, it says, humbled, brought down. The eleventh horn is the Antichrist. Eyes like a man. He has a big mouth with pompous words. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves today is this. Why will the world follow the Antichrist? Why will the world just cave and flop and follow the Antichrist? I think it's a good question. And I think it's going to be this. The world turmoil will facilitate his rise. The ten nations, remember the ten toes in Daniel chapter 2, are a mixture of iron and clay, and they don't mix well. They aren't strong. And so it's a setup for the Antichrist. In 243 it says this, that it's a mixture of iron and clay. Now watch this. Antichrist is going to reveal himself. He's going to come to the rescue of the world. He's going to be intelligent, persuasive. He'll be a financial genius. You know why? This world is looking at debt like you cannot believe. And there will be a payday someday for the debt. And there will be a crisis, a worldwide crisis related to the massive debt that the world has. This guy is going to be a financial genius, come onto the scene and solve the problems of the world, and people are going to flop all over for him. He's going to be a military genius, and he's also going to be a diplomat. So strong will his diplomacy be that he will be the one that solves the Jewish problem. See, that's in quote. The Jewish problem. The world looks at it as a Jewish problem. We look at it as a Jewish blessing, but it's, the world looks at it as a Jewish problem. And there's going to be this peace pact that's signed in Daniel 9.27. He confirms a covenant with, with Israel. In Revelation chapter 6.2, we see how he comes on the scene as a white horse. And he comes on the scene as, and he has a bow in his hand. He comes on with peace, but immediately there's war after that. He ushers in a, a false peace, and people will love him. And folks, deception will abound. If you would, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. For most of you, this will be, your Bible will flop open there because we've been here so many times. But this is how and this is why he's going to be so popular. Maybe it'll be a little clearer to you now since we're going through all this stuff in Daniel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. 
And then the lawless one, who is the Antichrist, will be revealed. That means unveiled, unveiled, exposed for who he is. See, people aren't going to really realize who he is when he first comes on the scene. They're going to love him. But there will be a time when he's revealed, exposed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth at his second coming and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And then it says this, the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, the energia, the energy of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And I will suggest to you that in the middle of the tribulation, Satan is booted out of heaven. Remember, he tries to make war with Michael and his angels. He loses. He's booted out of heaven. I believe that it's at that time the Antichrist is indwelt by Satan. And then he does all these miraculous signs and wonders that are going to blow people away. And with all unrighteous deception, keyword always with Satan is deception, among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. Why were they deceived? They did not receive the love of the truth. They did not believe who Jesus Christ really was. And the deception is amazing with the Antichrist. Watch what happens here. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. What is the lie? I believe the great lie is Antichrist is going to position himself as the Christ. And that is what happens when he sets himself up in the, in the temple to be worshipped as God. That's called the abomination of desolation, mentioned in Matthew chapter 24, mentioned in the book of Revelation. That is what I think that the lie is. And people will believe that he is really Jesus Christ because of all the miracles he does. There's even one that is very significant, that he has a mortal head wound and actually dies and then was resurrected, mimicking the resurrection of Christ. That's how slick this thing is and how people will be deceived in mass. In mass. Finally, conclusion. We must know what is coming. Know what is coming. Number one, the Antichrist is a deceiver. He is a deceiver. I believe that we might be able to identify who this person is as he slowly comes onto the scene. Now, we're going to be out of here before he gains power, for sure. I believe the rapture of the church is going to, going to happen before that. We may be able to see this. And then God holds believers responsible to know what is coming, to identify the deception. Scripture is replete. Let no one deceive you. No one deceive you. Know the word of God. Be a Berean. Make sure that what I am saying is true to you. Make sure of that. And you guys usually do. I usually get something if I'm off. So the times will be, mar will be marked by the church falling away, a great apostasy. Zadiades in his Greek text defines apostasy as this, choosing to stay away from the true faith. Choosing to stay away from the true faith. Much that we see in Western Christianity is hype, folks. It's smoke and mirrors. Feel good. Excited. It's a show. It's a performance. I want to see the performance. There was a guy, John Fogarty, was at the, at, the, uh, at the casino. And my son's sending me these pictures. I mean, I love Creedence Clearwater Revival. I can't go to the casino to see the guy. I just don't think it's the proper place for me to be. But he put on a performance. People want to come out of church like they've seen a performance. Oh, was that good. Oh, the smoke was blowing and the worship, I was just lifted up in the air. And I started to dance. I was just like going to see John Fogarty. 
No, that is, I mean, we want great worship and that sort of thing directed towards God. It's not meant to make me feel all, you know, all full of myself. Feel good, pander to me. That's that's that church. To make me feel good, pander to me. That's not what the church in Iran is doing. That's not the church in China. That's not the church that's being persecuted through the rest of this world. Remember, God does not see us see as we see. Revelation chapter three, and I'll end with this: the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. By the way, it was forty miles southeast of the church of Philadelphia, which was the faithful church, very close. It was 100 miles from Ephesus. It had a banking center. It had a medical school. And it's ruins today. It's in ruins. It doesn't exist today. Notice what Jesus says to this church and to the angel of the church of Laodicea, the apostasy church. That's the age we're living in now, the Laodicean age. These things says the amen. It means certain truth. The faithful and true witness, beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold, so then because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich. See, their view of themselves are big and great and wonderful. They have everything. I'm rich. It's independent. I become wealthy and have need of nothing. And God's view is this. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. You're talking about salvation that you may be rich and have white garments, salvation, that you may be closed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve. What does the God of this age want to do? Blind the minds of unbelievers. Anoint your eyes with eye salve. See who I really am. See who I really am. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase, and therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him or sup with him and he with me. And to him who overcomes, believers are always, always, always viewed as overcomers. Always in Scripture. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my Father's throne. Isn't that great? Millennial. And also, I, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And then he closes each one of these messages to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear what he's saying to you today, what the Spirit is saying to you. He who has an ear. Prophecy is important to God. It must be important to us. It's 28% of the Scriptures. Daniel 7 is important to lay a foundation so that we will indeed know what is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. As always, it's a privilege to study your word. It is a gift that you have given to your people. It is a gift that you've given to the world that we may know who Jesus really is, that we may know he's really coming back, that we may know that he's really going to take us out of here to Father's house, that we may know that we will reign with him a thousand years on this earth, that we may know that we are his children. Father, I pray today that anybody who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior here would say yes to Jesus Christ. I believe you died for my sins, Jesus. I accept you as my Savior. I put my trust into you. I believe you took my sin debt on the cross. 
I receive you as my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for shedding your blood for me. Thank you for making a way for me to have fellowship with a holy God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gift of life. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.